together through the book of Philippians. Boys and girls, if you're still with us, make sure you have your children's bulletin. It's hot pink, you can't miss it. You have your own translation in there and a place where you can ask us questions if you'd like. And please make sure you put your name on those if you ask us questions so we can uh, get those back to you and answer you. <clears throat> For the rest of you, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, finishing up the entire rest of the chapter uh, today. <clears throat> and as you're turning there, I want to take your mind to the concepts of hope and change. No, I am not running for president, but those are very powerful concepts, aren't they? They, they kind of tap into a, a fundamental desire that we have, so many of us, to be different people, to have a different life. Just by mere example, those of you who were here three weeks ago, how many of you have found it very difficult not to complain about things in spite of the very clear instructions from Paul we got a couple, three weeks ago? Yeah, me, me too. But we can have hope, right? We can be different. We can be better. We can be changed. We can be the kind of people that we really want to be, empowered by God's grace through the gospel. And that's right where we are in this, in this part of Philippians. We learned a couple weeks ago that the gospel makes Christians weird, if you remember. That non-complaining Christians, we saw in verse 14, are actually beacons of the gospel to a dark and twisted world in verse 15. That is the fact that everybody and their dog complains about everything, but that Christians are given this clear thing, don't complain. And that in and of itself will make people go, you're weird, but it's a good weird. How did you get to be weird? And Paul says that actually makes us shine like stars to a, a dark world. But before that, we had this great picture of Christ's humility uh, as an example of the church, how they should be humble, but it's more than an example. Christ's humility in dying for his people was actually the power for us to be humble. He gives us this great teaching on this, but it's all well and good to get a scripture passage about Christ's humility. And it's great to have Paul apply it for us in verses 14 through 18. But in the daily struggle of faith, in real life, we need someone to look to. We need examples. And Paul knows that. And so with a, with a pastor's heart, he spotlights two men now in the rest of this chapter who demonstrate everything he's been teaching in this chapter. And in doing so, he himself actually becomes another example as well. So today we're going to get to meet three weirdos for the gospel. Three people that the gospel has just made so different that the only term someone who has no idea about church or Christianity would, could come up with for these three people would be, they're weird. So let's, with that in mind, let's look together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. This is God's word. <clears throat> I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary 
to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now this is God's word. Before we go to God's word, would you please pray with me? Oh Lord God, we ask that you would indeed open this text up to us. Give us truth, Lord, for our growth, for our transformation, and for your glory. May we truly have hope and experience change because of your work in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to give you a theme for today, something we're going to talk about. It's this, we need the gospel for the challenges of real life. We prove that the gospel makes Christians weird by how we handle real real life. Let's look at this together. The first thing we're going to see is the gospel for challenging our feelings. This is a very emotional passage. We get to see here, having read this, that Paul is not a robot. And the people serving with him are not robots either. I know we just read it, but to give you a brief overview, Paul says he needs to be cheered up in verse 19. He said he has sorrow and he doesn't want more sorrow in verse 27. He says that Timothy genuinely is concerned and anxious in verse 20. He says that Epaphroditus is longing and homesick and distressed in verse 26. And he says that Paul is, he's eager to have less anxiety. He's actually excited to have less anxiety in verse 28. This, this, this sounds like a therapy session, doesn't it? If you think about it, you got stress and you got genuine concernness and anxiety and homesick. Well, let's see what's going on here with the specifics based on that overview. Why is this such an emotional passage? Look with me, if you will, at verse 19. It says this. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Notice what Paul says. Why does he want to send Timothy? Because Paul wants his happy back. Paul wants some good news. Paul's not complaining. He's honest with his feelings. He's having a very tough time. He's like, man, I want to send Timothy so he can bring me back good news. He's honest about what's going on while submitting to a sovereign God. Can I just say that it's okay to be honest about your life? There's this idea in church, you've got to put on this happy face all the time. And, but you know what? Life is not easy in a sin-twisted world, is it? And it's okay to be honest about that. Paul is honest about that right here. It's not easy. Paul actually says here, there's just something not right about him being separated so long from this church he planted, this church he loves. He said, we should be together. And he has anxiety about the fact that they're not together. Oh, and so too, dear Christian, as wonderful as our fellowship with Jesus Christ is through the Holy Spirit, we only know him in part. There's something not right about us not being with 
our risen Savior. We should want Christ to come back for us, to make us completely His, to see Him as He really is. Paul's sadness here over being separated from the Philippians really is a reflection of the fact that there's something not right with us being separated from our Christ. This world, what Paul called last passage back in verse 15, crooked and twisted, creates complicated emotions. It creates challenging feelings. Paul says in another verse, in verse 28, that he's eager, that he wants to send Epaphroditus to them, that he's anxious or eager to send Epaphroditus to them. Why? He says, so he'll be less anxious. Literally, he says, so I'll have less grief, less sorrow. For those of you who don't think the Bible applies to real life, Paul is talking about real life here. You don't have to raise your hand, but I bet this week there's been a significant number of you who've experienced anxiety, perhaps grief, perhaps sorrow. The gospel speaks to that. Thanks be to God we have the gospel for the real challenges of real life. And so did the Philippian church. They had that same gospel, and they're going through problems. So to remind them of that, Paul wants to send them Timothy. And again, Paul uses very emotional language here to describe Timothy. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says this, says about, about Timothy, he is genuinely concerned for their welfare. We could actually translate that more literally, he is anxious for your welfare. As in the famous verse we're going to get to in, a, in about a month, do not be anxious about anything, Paul says, same verse. Paul, Timothy is anxious for them. He also says in verse 20 that I have no one else like him. It's literally, he shares my soul. You see what Paul's saying here? He's sending, he wants to send a part of himself back to love and care for that church since he can't go. And then once he's there, he wants Timothy to come and bring him back good news about what's going on in the church. I want you to hear that with the ears of faith. This idea that Paul wants to send part of himself to the church, to encourage the church, to find out what's going on, and then come back to Paul for answers, and also come back to cheer up Paul. I want you to smell the gospel in that, if you'll allow me to use that phrase. Paul doesn't just pick some random person, like, oh, someone's got to go to Philippi. Uh, you'll do. Let's go. No, he sends his very best. He sends someone who says, this guy shares my heart. He's part of me. Oh, so too, dear flock. When Jesus Christ ascended to the Father, he gave us his very best. He gave us a part of himself to be with us. He gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be with us, to encourage us, and to remind us of God's love. Oh, but there's more. Timothy has to go, and he's going to search out issues in the church. He's going to give them some brief encouragement and instruction. He's going to take that report back to Paul to get the answers. And so, too, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit searches our hearts. The Holy Spirit helps us see where we need to grow. The Holy Spirit even tells us how to pray and prays alongside of us. And then the Holy Spirit actually ushers our prayers up to the very throne room of God and takes them to Him to get His answer. What a beautiful picture of the gospel in such a small thing as describing how Paul wants to send Timothy to help the church. I hope you think 
that personally about what God has left for you in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is very often the forgotten person of the Trinity, isn't he? It's almost like the force in Star Wars sometimes. We don't don't know what to do with, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' best left for us to help us while Jesus is not here. It's a wonderful picture. But, Paul tells us, Timothy can't quite go yet. So Paul is going to send Epaphroditus back to them. And Epaphroditus actually carries the scroll that we call Philippians. He is the delivery boy of this letter. And it turns out that he's an emotional wreck too, actually. I grew up in Wyoming, and um, when I was probably from 6 to 10, my parents would just drive us down to Wyoming they kind of dump us off in Wyoming, and then they'd go play. I didn't understand it then, but now that I have children, I understand wanting to get some time with just no kids. So no offense, love y'all. But anyway, so um, we had relatives all over northern Arkansas, so they would just dump us off, and just we would be shuttled around for three, four, five, six weeks and, not, and, and be gone. And there was this one time when I was seven to eight years old that we only stayed about two weeks because I've heard my dad tell this story, so I'm going to tell it from his perspective. He got a call from my grandfather. My grandfather said, Don, you've got to come get this boy. I have never seen a more homesick kid in my life. He is miserable. You've got to come get this kid. That's okay for a seven to eight-year-old, right? Now, if I was like 30, that'd be a little weird, right? But that's actually the language that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus here. Epaphroditus actually pushes the boundaries of weirdness here. Look with me at verse 26. Paul says this about Epaphroditus. says, He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He actually says he's been intensely craving to come back home with you. It's actually a word sometimes used for an inappropriate sinful craving for something you shouldn't have. So it's right borderline. Paul really saying, man, you, you got to come. i got to send this kid back. He is so homesick. I've never seen a guy like this. And notice why he's upset. Because he got sick. They heard about it. They got worried. And he was upset that they were worried. And so it made him homesick. It's just really, again, this is like a therapy session, isn't it? It's this emotional entanglement web. It almost sounds funny. And I'm belaboring this point because it's not obvious in the English translations, but in the Greek, the way that they put put it together, this is over-the-top emotional language. These three men, Paul, Titus, Epaphroditus, excuse me, Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were emotional wrecks. They clearly did not have it all together. And I hope that encourages you. There's this idea out there that being godly equals being unemotional. That apparently we're not supposed to be more like Christ, we're supposed to be more like Spock, you know, and that's what sanctification looks like. But we see in these three sanctified, godly men, each with deep feelings, their feelings are all over the map, and they're not afraid to show it. It's okay for Christians to have uncontrollable feelings sometime about what's going on in their world. It's okay for us to sometimes feel out of control, to have intense sorrow, intense grief, to just be upset. It's okay. If you don't believe me, I'm going to call as a witness for the prosecution a very serious man, a serious pastor from 500 years ago who is not known for his emotional outbursts. Pastor John Calvin says this. He says about Paul, he says, He does not, therefore, make it his boast that he has the apathy of the Stoics. 
as if he were a man of iron and exempt from human affections. Paul acknowledges that he felt some uneasiness and pain, but that he nevertheless cheerfully endured for the sake of Christ. See, the gospel speaks to our emotions. The gospel speaks to our feelings. It's okay to be kind of wound up and high-strung and upset sometimes. It's okay to be honest about that. And it's okay for us to let each other be honest about that so that we can actually safely be real in the gospel. Because we need the gospel for the challenges of real life. And real life usually revolves around other people, so the next thing we need is we need the gospel for challenging relationships. In a a previous church where I was the pastor uh, in suburban St. Louis, the particular suburb that I was in had a very profound problem with human trafficking because of where it was on the NAFTA highway and it, it was incredible the amount of human trafficking that was going on right under this nice suburban noses of this, of this town. And I wanted our church to be aware of that situation. I wanted our church to somehow be involved in that and I had absolutely no idea what to do. But St. Louis University had a great social work program and they were heavily involved in trying to combat um, human trafficking. So I called up the social um, school, whatever you call it, the social working school and, and told them who I was and what I wanted to do and they were honored to have a pastor come and, and try to get some help. And they said, sure, absolutely. And they invited me to come to their next departmental meeting, which is a big deal. And they, they said, we're going to give you 10 minutes to kind of talk to us and we'll, we'll figure something out together. I said, great. That's awesome. Let's do that. So, a little background. St. Louis University is a Jesuit school. The Jesuits, stick with me here, you had the Protestant Reformation, the doctrines of grace explode all over Europe. People are throwing off the shackles of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. They're coming to faith in Christ in droves. And Protestantism is, is just going gangbusters. Well, some people didn't like that. And so the counterattack, the counterassault, the counterreformation was the creation of this order inside the Catholic Church called the Jesuits. And the Jesuits' job was to learn Protestantism better than most Protestant pastors then and now know of Protestantism. And they would go to different congregations as just regular old members. And if it was a Calvinist congregation, they would start preaching Lutheranism to cause dissent. If it was a Lutheran congregation, they start preaching you know, Calvinism. They start purposely putting denominations against each other, purposely creating dissension. If that didn't work, they'd go to the civil magistrate, and they would get him to arrest people who were Protestants. And if they could, if it was a Catholic-controlled area, this is historically verifiable, but it's not popular, they killed thousands of Protestants, especially pastors, priests, men who people called father would carry swords and kill Protestant pastors. That's how the Jesuits started. That's the background of this school. Okay, so the head of the department is a Jesuit priest who everyone in this meeting is calling father. And I'm not going to call him father. I call him sir. I'm very respectful. So we have our little meeting. And about 10 minutes into the meeting, he stops and he looks at me and goes, and he starts asking me some kind of weird questions. I'm not going to tell you what the questions were. Basically, he was asking me, now, are, are you PCA or PCUSA? He didn't know the names, but he knew there were two different Presbyterians out there. And, and I said, I'm, I'm PCA. Our seminary's here in town. And he goes, oh, I'll never forget this. And I want to, I want to quote this, so I make sure I get it right. He goes, oh, so you really believe all that Westminster stuff then? Now, again, a little background. Westminster Confession of Faith is our doctrinal standards, is our denomination. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, I'm sure you've all read this so you know, but just in case you haven't, it actually says the Roman Catholic Church is an apostate church. It's right there. It says the Pope 
is an antichrist, because, you know, there's more than one. It, it, it says right there, the Pope is an antichrist. I didn't know if he was referring to that. I didn't know if he was just talking in general, and so I just kind of said, um, yes, sir, I, I do take the Westminster Standards very seriously. He looks at me, he crosses his arms, and he sits back in his chair, and he says, well, just a few centuries ago, you and I'd be fighting to the death. I, I didn't know what to do with that, honestly, but I am a proud Presbyterian. I, I named my second son Benjamin Knox after John Knox, the founder of Scottish Presbyterianism. I, I actually took a vow to Westminster, and I did not take exceptions to the Roman Catholic part. I do believe that in many cases, the Pope is an expression of Antichrist. So I didn't have a problem with that, and so I, I didn't know what to do, and I can kind of be a little bullheaded. That's a surprise to some of you. Some of you, it's not. And so I just looked at him. I said, are you inviting me to step outside? I know, I know. I was 32. What do you expect? I know. But isn't it sad that a meeting about human trafficking devolved to that point? Because that's what people do, isn't it? We break up into tribes. And I'm talking bigger than the whole Clemson-USC thing. We break up into real tribes. And we just don't like the other people because they're not part of our tribe. Right? That's how fallen humanity relates to itself. There's something incredibly beautiful in our passage today. If we just scratch below the surface to look at it, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus should hate each other intensely. They are from completely different tribes, and they do not get along. Paul is the uber-conservative, rule-following Pharisee of Pharisees. He calls himself that, by the way. He was an educated Jew. He knew his stuff. He knew he was right, and he knew you were wrong. Timothy. His mother's a Jew, we find out from the book of Acts. His dad is a Gentile. He lives out in the scattering of Jews in the Roman Empire called the Diaspora. He doesn't live near Jerusalem. And shock of shocks, he was not circumcised. He was the wrong stuff, as far as Paul is concerned. And then there's Epaphroditus. We don't know much about him outside of his name and that he's from Philippi. But his name actually tells us enough. If you look closely at his name there, Epaphroditus you'll see in the, the main part of his name is the word Aphrodite, the pagan Roman or Greek god for sex. You might know her Roman name is Venus. So he was named after the idol of sex or perhaps even dedicated to her since he has her name. So he wasn't just a Gentile. He was a pagan Gentile dedicated to this idol. These three men should have hated each other. Paul, the Pharisee, would naturally look down with contempt on Timothy, the uncircumcised half-breed. And they both would have felt superior to Epaphroditus, the Greek pagan. But instead, Paul says he sees Timothy as a son. He, he describes Epaphroditus, we read, almost as like some sort of pastoral special forces. Because the gospel helps people then and now look on those people whoever those people are to us, with real love instead of as us versus them. And that's not just lip service. Let's, let's dig into that a little bit. There's depth to this. Look at verse 22 with me. How, look how Paul describes Timothy. He goes, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. 
See, here's Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee who hated those no-good half-breeds like Timothy. He now says in the gospel, he loves Timothy as a son. See, the gospel challenges our relationships. It won't let us just stay the same. Even more so, if there was anyone that the Pharisees hated more than half-breeds like Timothy, it was full-blown Gentiles. Especially your plain old, average, everyday, pagan, idolater, Roman citizen, Gentile, like Epaphroditus. A man dedicated, named after the god Aphrodite. But Paul describes him so well. And think about Epaphroditus. He grew up with that baggage from that pagan world. And so, of course, Paul, the suit-wearing, Bible-thumping Pharisee, would hate him. But the gospel overcame that. It's such a glorious picture. I mean, Epaphroditus actually, most likely by the verbiage here, was the pastor of the Philippian church, it seems. And notice what Paul says about him in verse 25. He says, My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister in my name. Look at that. These descriptions that he gives Epaphroditus. I mean, the gospel is so much bigger and better than Epaphroditus' past. So God changed him. God used him mightily in his kingdom, regardless of who he or what he'd been dedicated to before. Because of the gospel, Epaphroditus was not defined by his past. Oh, and dear flock, your past doesn't have to define you either. The tendency for all of us to dwell on our failures, to dwell on our mess-ups, to think we're damaged goods. Man, the gospel's bigger than all of that. You don't have to be defined by your past. Or, or what or who you used to dedicate your life to. Instead, you can be made new in Christ with an entirely new story like Epaphroditus was. And that applies to individuals, but it also applies to us as a people. Here's what I mean by that. I'm a Southerner. I was born in Memphis. I graduated high school in Memphis. I get it. I saw it. I was in it. We need to be realistic as Southern Christians about the racism that's part of the past of our church. It doesn't do us any good to deny it. It doesn't do us any good to get bitter when someone mentions it and to stuff, stuff it down. We need to be candid about the tribalism that it basically was. We need to be candid about the tribalism still in our hearts today. We need to be candid about, can, can I say it, the racism that's still in our hearts today. And we need to recognize that the gospel is bigger than that. The gospel is bigger than our cultural baggage. If it can overcome Epaphroditus, one dedicated to a pagan idol, made into a pastor, imagine what the gospel can do for us in our past. We need to beg God to forgive our churches for the part they played back then. Absolutely. But we need to do that so that by God's grace, he can purge that tribalism. He can purge that racism from our hearts today. Because the gospel challenges relationships. The real gospel does. So what that means for us today in Orangeburg is the gospel challenges us. I want to return to the idea we started this whole thing out with. The idea of hope. The idea of change. That longing in our heart to be different. Can we truly have hope and change in our life to be better, to be different? And the answer, of course, is yes, through the gospel. 
and not the gospel again, kind of like we saw the Holy Spirit, so too people often talk about the gospel and it sounds like they're talking about the force from Star Wars more than something tangible and real. The gospel is not this kind of misty thing out there that changes things. The gospel is real and tangible. It's the Trinity's incredible work of redemption where because of the love of God the Father, earned by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is now actively and powerfully bringing about a new people and a new world for God's glory, for God's own possession. What an incredible power at work. The Trinity says this will happen, and here's how we're going to do it. That's the gospel. It's the unstoppable power of God for salvation, and it's all over this passage. Just one example Look with me at verse 21. Paul says this about the people around him. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul is purposely vague here in this text. Is is he talking about the Christians who are with him? That's not very nice. Is he talking about the church at Philippi who he's talking to? I don't know. Is he talking about the Roman populace in general? See, the answer is yes. He's talking about all of those things. Verse 21 literally says they all crave to worship themselves. They clean it up, you know, seek their own interests, but actually they crave to worship themselves. If we're candid, that's our heart, isn't it? That's the heart of every single person. We want to be worshipped, and very often we, we worship ourselves. He's talking about everybody in general. But then more specifically, again, this is happening in the context, so bear with me. Remember about a month ago? Remember verses two and, or 3 and 4 from this chapter? It says, says this, says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. See, the people in the Philippian church, they were being selfish. They were being They were looking out for their own interests. They were worshiping themselves, and it was destroying the church. And so Paul's prescription is the gospel just rubbed into their life because the gospel cures all that. Because God's grace empowers us for real change. You remember that? Remember verse 13 about three or four weeks ago? It says this, what? It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you remember that? See, God's grace works over our self-interest. But remember, we're not passive in that. Remember the verse right before that, the famous verse, verse 12? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Remember that one? See, God is working in us, but we exert effort as Christians as well to be more godly, to be like Christ. And that's what happened to Timothy. That's why Paul can say to him, no one else cares about you like I do except for Timothy. Timothy, the man who would naturally look down on these Gentile pagans. And the Philippian church was full of them. The Philippian church was one of the first churches in Acts that there's hardly any Jewish involvement at all. It's all Gentile. And so instead of worshiping himself, instead of validating his own prejudices, instead of saying those people out there aren't worthy of God's grace, the gospel challenged Timothy and it changed him. We'll end with this. Looking back at verse 19, Paul implies that Timothy's going to go, he's going to get information, and then he's going to come back. It's a round trip to bring Paul encouraging news. You're looking at about a thousand miles in AD 35 or 45 ish, that decade. 
thousand-mile round trip, very arduous for his father. A thousand miles one way, excuse me. But Timothy takes this arduous round trip for his father in the faith, Paul, because he's concerned for their welfare, just as Paul is concerned for their welfare. And so he's willing to take that trip. And so, too, Paul told us in verses 7 through 9 that Jesus Christ was willing to endure an arduous trip for his father. That he was concerned for the welfare of his people, so he left heaven and he came and he lived the life that his people should have lived. He died the death his people deserved. And then in his resurrection and ascension, he went back to his father so he could cheer and glorify his father with an entire company of children to adopt. Oh, and if you will but place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, you can be one of those children too. You can have the power of God's grace working in your life through the gospel. You can have that change because real change is possible through the gospel it's so hard not to complain and it's just one example isn't it to be beacons in a dark twisted world we can't do it in our own power but as the gospel changed paul and changed timothy and changed epaphroditus the gospel can change us these three men loved each other and they cared deeply for god's people because they were challenged and changed by the gospel And dear flock, we can be too. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we do. We just ask you candidly, Lord, would you bring your power in our lives? Oh, Lord, especially those of us who know you, we we believe your word. We know we're going to heaven when we die. But so often, Lord, we just don't see much, much, much of you in our lives day in and day out. We're too busy. Lord, would you change us by your gospel? Would you call us to a closer walk with you? Would you make us more like Christ? Would you make us more loving? Would you do that by the power of your grace? And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been portrayed as crucified, buried, and resurrected, that you would be true to your word and you would draw people to yourself. Even now, Father, would you do your work of salvation and bring men and women to your kingdom? Would you help us all, Lord, to look to your gospel, your power for salvation? Would you help us live as salt and light, being beacons to a dark world? Change us by your gospel, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.